Hello, Emerging Cricket fans, and welcome to another episode of the show. We sit down with umpire Claire Polisak this week, but first, a shout-out to those who support us on Patreon. From as little as $2 a month as a patron, you can access bonus content at Emerging Cricket and have a say on the show's direction. To sign up, log on to Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Cricket. But for now, enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another Emerging Cricket Podcast online and on Sport FM in Perth. I'm Daniel Beswick. I'll be joined by Tim Cutler and Nick Skinner in a few moments, but first some news from around the world. It was a quiet night at the IPL auction for emerging players on Thursday, with no associates picked up for the 2021 tournament. Singapore's Tim David and Nepal's Sandeep Lamachane went unsold, with USA's Ali Khan and UAE's Kartik Mayapan never presented on the auction block. It was happier news in the PSL with Ali Khan and Irish opener Paul Sterling signing on with Islamabad United. Khan made his debut last PSL with Karachi Kings and comes into the tournament after winning the CPL last year with Trinbago. Sterling, meanwhile, joins off the back of an ICC Player of the Month nomination and 209 runs in the Abu Dhabi T10 at a strike rate of 230. In a boost for cricket in Germany, six new teams will feature in the Women's Bundesliga for 2021, up from nine in the 2020 season. The expansion has meant the North East Regional Group will split a separate North and East groups, with the winners of the four groups advancing to the semi-finals in September. Germany's women's team won all nine of their international T20 matches last year and will compete in T20 World Cup qualifying in August. And finally, Nepal's men's team have continued their training camp in spite of their cancelled World Cup League 2 tri-series against Oman and the USA. After naming a preliminary squad of 32 players, the group has been trimmed down to 20 under new coach Dav Watmore, with Nepal's next international action a World Cup League 2 tri-series in Scotland against the hosts and Namibia. That's all the news in the Emergent game this week. For more, log on to EmergentCricket.com. Coming up, we sit down with a pioneer in international cricket, recently becoming the first woman to stand in a men's one-day international and the first woman to officiate in a men's test match. Claire Polisak has been a leading match official for a number of years. In part one of our chat with Claire, we discuss her beginnings in umpiring, the pressures of the game at the highest level and the state of the game in women's and associate cricket. I'm Catherine Bryce, an all-rounder for the Scotland women's cricket team, and you're listening to the Emerging Cricket Podcast. The guest list on the Emerging Cricket Podcast continues to grow, and in a first on the show, we have a match official. Boys, the usual welcome. The records in history made by, I guess, is probably a little bit too long for an intro, but we're delighted to welcome umpire and umpire educator with a focus on female umpire engagement. Claire Polisak, thanks for joining the Emerging Cricket Podcast. No, look, thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to, to chat to you guys. It's been a really busy summer for you. We've seen you create plenty of history over uh, the Test Series here in Australia against India. If if you could probably just give us a reflection on, on that early doors and, and what's on the agenda for you at the moment. Yeah, I think... The, the test series really was quite a surprise. It came a little bit out of the woodwork, um, but being it being in the environment that you know dealing with the test players, the test umpires, uh, was a fantastic learning experience. Really, I uh, took a lot away from it and just trying to absorb and watch what the the elite guys were doing to, to prepare an umpire. So it was really really enjoyable experience. To probably take away from one of Nick's one thousand questions tonight, you were uh, the fourth umpire for uh, a large portion of that series. Uh, to the average watcher at home, what does the fourth umpire role entail? Yeah, I think 
a good way to think about it is like the 12th man. Um, so it's the 12th man of the umpiring team uh, there to support the guys with however, whatever they need to ensure that they can concentrate on, on the field, the business stuff, getting their decisions correct. So, you know, looking after the pitch before the game starts, having the replacement balls, having the new ball ready after 80 overs, seeing if the, the players who have gone off the field for injury, if they're actually re- receiving treatment or if they're just kicking back and relaxing. Hmm. Uh, there was a bit of wet weather around. So uh, working with the groundsmen to try and get the ground ready as soon as we possibly can. So a lot of little things in the background to make sure that the day goes smoothly for the guys on field. I'm looking at Nick intently watching over <laughs> our uh, production notes. And before we, we got you on today, I'd didn't even get a chance to come up with a couple of ideas because Nick, as a budding umpire himself, has uh, quite a few things. But I think we've kept up with your progress. We watched you in in Namibia World Cricket League 2 officiating in that final of the tournament where, well, I suppose everyone got a sort of half day off because Namibia just ran through their opposition. Uh, Looking back on that, and I suppose ticking off these highlights and achievements over the the course of your um, umpiring career... Take us back to when you started. How did you start umpiring? What was your inspiration? What what drew you to the to the game and, and officiating in it? Yeah, never played cricket. Um, I grew up in Goulburn, and there's no girl. Well, there, there was no girls' cricket when I was growing up. Um, but it was just something I was really interested in. I had, you know, instead of having um, the Backstreet Boys on my wall, I had the Australian men's team on on my wall. Followed cricket. You know, every year our family holiday would be to come to the Sydney Test match. Uh, so I followed cricket from a distance. And then when I was about 15, um, friend's dad actually put the umpiring course to me. So unlike Tim, I wasn't able to pass the exam first up um, as a 15-year-old. It did take me a couple of times to get there. I don't know if I ever made it to 92% in the in the assessment, but it was, um, <laughs> <laughs> but it was uh, I, I kept, you know, being 15, never played cricket. It was just something that I um, was really, really determined to do. I can't tell you why exactly, but every time I did it, it got a little bit better. I started umpiring once I did pass in Goulburn in the men's competition and then moved over to Sydney pub cricket when I came up to the university and just over, you know, moved my way up through the ranks uh, over the last few years or so. We should probably give some context to that 92% uh, <laughs> remark. Nick, I'm looking at you. Do you, do you want to uh, perhaps deliver your, your, your flex on this uh, on this podcast just to get the ball rolling here? Well, it's Herod Erasmus's uh, highest one-day score. <laughs> But it's um, it's it's also my uh, my <laughs> my pass mark on on the umpiring course I did a number of years ago under the uh, the tutelage of Darren Goodger, who's uh, I've since learned uh, uh, works right next to Claire in the in the office, so it's all coming back together. Yeah. And Claire has since stalked him on the system, looked him straight <laughs> up. And, uh... What's what's power if you don't have the access, right? <laughs> So Claire, you've just talked about um, how there was there was no girls team in you know in Goulburn, and and that's why you didn't play. And obviously, female engagement is is a big part of your role with Cricket Australia. How have you seen the progress for women, both in terms of playing and in terms of officiating uh, within Australia over the years you've you've been working here? Yeah, I think I think 2016 was when the New South Wales Breakers first became the fully professional uh, women's team. And I think from then, what I've really enjoyed is the fact that now, you know, with the increased training, with the increased professionalism, with the increased athleticism, now when you go to a WBBL game or a women's international match, there's little boys, you know, kids are watching the game and it's boys are watching the women's game and they don't care. 
And I think that's been the biggest impact that they're just watching cricket. You know, they just enjoy the game. And that's, I think, has been the biggest change that I've seen there. Uh, when, I, when I started in a Cricket New South Wales uh, in 2016 in, in my role, uh, really great foresight. And I've been really lucky um, with the opportunity because, you know, females make up 50% of the population. Um, and why aren't there more umpires, female umpires? And I think it really comes down to awareness that it is possible. Uh, a female who started umpiring maybe three or four years ago, she first said to me, she's always wanted to be an umpire, but she's never known how to how to become one. So providing the the awareness that there is a pathway, that there are opportunities, uh, I think is really important. And that's from a playing, coaching, officiating, whatever aspect it is, is, is really important there. Yeah, Rod Lyle, one of uh, the emerging cricket contributors, made the same point at a, a, a women's big bash we attended a few weeks ago. Uh, you know, pointing to a kid in the crowd who had a one of the the, the women players' names on on the shirt. You know, and so that was, his hero was a was a female player, and that's obviously a, a huge step forward. Um, you you just talked about how obviously you're trying to provide a sort of a, a mentoring role for other women. Who were your mentors coming through um, both, you know, in the umpiring scene and you know, as you've sort of developed in, in your role here? Well, when I first attended the laws courses, Simon Taufel was Annie's peak of, of umpiring. In our association, we have a, a black and white uh, newsletter that comes out a few times a year. And I don't remember this, but recently when you know, you get, you have stuff at your parents' house and you collect it and then they ask you to get it, that sort of stuff. <laughs> yeah, mum's always complaining about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I was going through some stuff and, and I found an article that Simon had written for that newsletter and that it had blue tack on the back. So I reckon that must have been on my wall when I was when I was growing up. So there, there was that. But I think once you start umpiring, you, you sort of take bits and pieces from everybody mm. uh, and, and asking questions and taking on feedback. And so I can't really name one mentor since I've been umpiring. Um, but I mean, Darren Goodger, as we just mentioned, mm. is just phenomenal person, phenomenal educator. And what he doesn't know about cricket and umpiring isn't probably worth knowing. <laughs> um, you know, and we've got Ben Trelaw, who's a contracted umpire as well, a really close friend now. We, we worked out that we actually did the laws course at the same time time and so it's been really good to, to get to know and, and be really good friends there and then we've got little bits of everybody you sort of take away and, and learn from which is which is really nice and it adds the camaraderie I think in the umpiring fraternity. Talked about the pathway and and, and that woman you talked about who wanted to be an umpire and, and came through and didn't know where to start what what is the pathway to become an umpire these days if there are people listening or kids out there that, that are keen to officiate rather than play where do you start? Yeah, so in, in New South Wales, we've got a couple of options. We do have a level one community officiating that's accredited with Cricket Australia. Um, and we, you know, it's aimed at mums and dads and players who have to umpire their own games. And then we've also got a level two laws course, which is what, which is what we've, well, most of us on the call have done um, that, that, you know, it, it takes, you know, we cover all of the laws. Sorry, Daniel, for stitching up. That's okay. But, you know, we cover all of the laws and then there's assessment task at the end. Once you've passed the assessment task and you've become a member of the umpire association, it's all about getting as many games as you possibly can. Um, and then taking on the feedback, um, we have off-field observers and on-field observers, captain's marks, and then they sort of add up to how you're performing. 
and then it's only through merit in New South Wales that you you pass up through through the grades. It can take a, a bit of time, really, but it's just making sure that you're ready for the next opportunity that you get. And then we've got our, so once you're in the, the first grade panel, we do have a state umpire panel who we're look after or appointed to like WNCL or WBBL. And then in normal worlds, fourth umpire for the BBL. And then we've got the supplementary panel, which is six contracted umpires. And then this year, there were 10 Cricket Australia contracted umpires full time. So that's sort of the, the general pathway there. But it takes a lot of time. We get a lot of people who um, start the laws course wanting to be a test umpire tomorrow. And there's a really good statistic that they're in, you know, since the history of test cricket, oh, and I'll have to get the numbers now, right, because we've had a couple of test reviews um, just recently. So I think um, Anil might be the most recent one in India, um, but there's about 480 test umpires or 490 test umpires since the 1700s. But since we've had space travel, so in the 1950s, there's been 560 uh, astronauts. So it's actually <laughs> more common for you to go to space That's than you incredible. are to be a test umpire. So it's, it's a That is a great stat. Yeah, the, the COVID has increased the numbers of umpires, but it's, yeah, there, there's definitely, it's it's a tight funnel for those that, that get there. So, so you've talked about the pathway sort of within Australia. Um, we met you in Namibia and you were officiating an ICC tournament. So what's the pathway, you know, going through the international stuff and especially looking on the associate side of things? Because that was the last uh, ICC Division Two tournament in the World Cricket League, which was an, an associate tournament. Yeah, so it's really up to the home boards to develop and educate and train the umpires. Um, and then I guess after that, uh, or with that, there's three panels of umpires for the ICC. So we've got the 12 elite that are doing the test matches that we see. And then every nation of the, the full member countries have an international umpire panel and their top three or four umpires are there. And then underneath that, we've got the development panel, uh, which is comprised of about 30 to 40 umpires. And they're the ones that come from the associate nations um, that you see more often uh, in the associate nation um, competitions. And then they've also got the, the eight females uh, on that panel as well from a mixture of associate and also full member nations there. So it's from that development panel there that the, the appointments for Namibia, for example, come from uh, or the appointments for the other World Cricket League that, that happened before Namibia. They all came from that sort of group of development panel umpires. So are the umpires randomly allocated or do you sort of put your hand up and say, oh, I'd, I'd like to visit Namibia. Can I go? Or, or like, is there kind of a combination of that? Yeah, it's whenever you see an email from the ICC, you're like, oh, what's this going to be about? So it's completely <laughs> random. Well, sorry, I'm sure it's not completely random, but I don't nominate to go to places, if that makes sense. Right. So it's it's a surprise when you get a, get an email um, or if Cricket Australia contact you to find out if you can available to go somewhere. So it, I'm sure there's a plan, but it's, I don't. You know, a fantastic trip that I did do was to Samoa in 2016 for the qualifiers. Oh, nice. For the one-day World Cup. You know, I haven't put my hand up going, oh, I'd rather go to Samoa over this other place. So <laughs> I was interested in one of your previous answers. You talked about taking pieces of advice or, or using examples from, from other umpires that you perhaps, you know, looked up to. But thinking about, you know, the game of cricket and, and the way that it's officiated, I suppose in the game of cricket, there's a little bit of leeway. There's more interaction between, say, players and match officials than, than other sports. What are the kind of lessons that you've taken and really run with in, in terms of your umpiring career? Yeah, I, I like to think of my umpiring as we're a jack-in-the-box and we only really come out when we're spoken to or we're asked a question. 
Um, so I think that's really, you know, we're there to facilitate a match. So to allow the players to do that as much as possible um, within the realms of the laws and the spirit. So I try and I only speak on field when I'm when I'm spoken to and not making it about us, if that makes sense. So that's what I try and do with the game. I, I tend to find that the fact that I've got a double X chromosome generally means that I'll stand out a little bit more than normal. So I just try and, you know, we've had a good day if umpires don't get notice on the field of play, really. Nick Skinner, the wicketkeeper and the umpire doesn't like to get noticed on, on the field. It's yin and yang, mate. You've got to have balance in all things. <laughs> um, so just on that, um, I guess, the, the philosophy that you have towards the job. So how much information do you usually give to players? And you know, how do you go about explaining decisions when you are asked? And, and um, I guess just generally, how do you approach game management? Um, are you more the sort of disciplinarian or you like have a joke with them? Or like, what's, what's your approach? For, for any budding umpires or any umpires are listening, I think what's really important and something that Simon Taffel is very strong on is that we are ourselves on the field of play. So if you're a genuinely funny person, you can be funny on the field. If you're genuinely not funny, then don't try and be funny because it's just going to come over flat and you'll lose, you lose any sort of relationship that you've got with the players. So try and be yourself. Uh, when I'm explaining decisions, I'm really careful about the language that I use. So if I said to, you know, the difference between saying, in my opinion, the ball was going down leg or I think the ball was going down leg, if you get a player who knows you, they're like, well, come on, play. What, what's the story today? Do you think or do you know? So being trying to be really concise about how you say things, you know, in my opinion, because they can't, they might disagree with your opinion, but it's your opinion. There's nothing that they can do about that. Um, so just trying to be really clear. Don't enter into any protracted conversations on the field if you can. Uh, a really good diffuser is, uh, look, happy to talk about it after the game. Mm-hmm. Nine times out of ten, they're not going to remember. and won't. Yeah. <laughs> I'll see you in the parking lot. Yeah, probably like that. <laughs> <laughs> so interesting, not, not, not interesting, I guess it makes sense to be yourself out there. It's like any walk of life, isn't it going to be better when you're being yourself? Me, back in the dating world, I guess that's what I should be telling myself as well. Just be... Oh, yeah? Maybe that's why I'm having no success. Who knows? That's a tough one there. You're saying don't be myself. More Simpsons quotes, Tim, I reckon. Is this, is this about Claire or about you, Tim? <laughs> I... I... So being yourself, and I guess that that's on the field, but then sort of off the field, how much interaction, you know, we're hearing everything about, about bubbles, hearing about players getting to know every other team they're playing against by playing franchise cricket with and against them. What's it like for umpires? Because I'm sure you're in a similar situation seeing players more often um, than umpires of the past. What does that mean for keeping relationships professional? Like we all heard accusations of umpires en- ending players' careers with one decision and, and, and the things that can boil over, you know, how does that go in terms of managing that that relationship? I guess I, and again, everybody is different. And it, it just comes down to being a, a good person, I guess. But at the same time, I'm not going to to run around and find a female player to play table tennis with. So if you're, if you're in the lift and you happen to be in the lift together, or if you, you know, in, your, uh, in the WBBL, we had to line up to get served for food. Just I find that players don't often want to talk to umpires, but if they make eye contact, they feel like they've got to talk. <laughs> um, so it's just about, you know, hi, how are you going? What's going I mean, in the WBBL, I got dressed for breakfast. I came down to the lift and the Scorchers team was there. And I looked at what I was wearing, which is an orange shirt and black trousers. And, I, and Amy Jones is there and, I, and, I, and she sort of looked at me and I've looked at her and I don't think I, I dressed quite well today because <laughs> I, I, I could have just hopped on the team bus with them. Um, so it's about finding those little moments that you, you can have without pushing yourselves onto them as umpires because people don't really want to be friends with umpires. So it's just about trying to subtly work on those relationships as much 
much as you possibly can. It sounds like you're somewhere between school teacher and um and and and, and like you're running a school camp or a holiday camp. You know, it's kind of like be friends, but you still... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, be, be friendly, but not friends. That's probably that's you've nailed that one there. I reckon. But no, that, that's what it sort of feels like. You're close, but like uh, at arm's reach, making yeah. friends at work, but not not even. It's kind of like no, no. It's a different relationship. We can't actually be really friends, and it must be tough when you meet people that you get on really well with you know how to go that uh, i guess that's similar for coaches and players but i just think of this sort of bubble atmosphere even even harder and it's different as well when you've seen in the girls you know you've seen the girls play in under 18s for a number of years and now they're playing wbbl and so and or with the boys uh or the male players you know started with them in fifth grade and now they're in first grade with me as well so you do get to know players over a number of years um mm. but i'm certainly not facebook friends with any of them um or connected to to many of them on on instagram <laughs> linkedin might get a workout though but i was thinking actually a story that just popped into my head while you were talking about that claire was when we were in namibia and i remember seeing all you guys i think eating together i think it was at joe's ale house in downtown vinthook oh, yes. and uh yeah we were right, we we just happened to sit right next to to the umpires yeah talk about sitting next to the teachers <laughs> and uh one of one of the guests that tim uh invited on this particular evening was uh hong kong wiki keeper scott mckechnie who uh had run into a bit of hot water a little bit earlier in that tournament it might have actually been that day and i think i remember him turning around to tim and, and myself thinking oh oh i shouldn't be here this feels really really awkward <laughs> <laughs> That was good to see the look on his face as he as he looked around, and it was it was like he'd just been caught shoplifting as well. He was like, oh. <laughs> "We were the journalists, so we were like, you know, nerdy table anyway, so we can't speak." But it's the same, you know. You give a player out LBW, they've massive nicked it onto their pads, and then you push the elevator button, and there they are when the doors open. You're like, "Oh." <laughs> Now we need to be real small. It's a lovely day, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, on that, what's, you know, we are all human. Um, maybe not Bez when he's working on stars. <laughs> but what, what is the mental process for, for not letting a mistake get to you? You know, whether it's a bit like a player, whether you believe in form or not. You now there's always a lot more of the game to go in the next game. You know, how, how do you work through that in, in your head? Yeah, I think it's really important to understand that everybody makes mistakes. So I, I've recently read that a, the cricket is a game of mistakes. If the fielding team never made a mistake, then the batting team wouldn't be able to score any runs. And if the batting team didn't make any mistakes, then the fielding team wouldn't be able to take any wickets. So mistakes, you know, umpires are only ever called into the game when a player does make a mistake. And, and as you sort of alluded to there, if you can't let go of it or move on from one mistake, the next ball that comes to you, you're in trouble. So Darren Gudja um, has has said that there's two reasons why an umpire will make a mistake. The first one is that the ball's just too good for you. Okay, there's nothing you could have done. It's just it's just is what it is. It's just too good. Just like players receive balls that are too good for them. The other reason why play why umpires generally makes mistakes is that their mind isn't where their body is. So they're thinking about the previous delivery. They're thinking about the fact that they've got what's happening at work. What you know, their their mind isn't where their body is. So it's all about trying your best to be absolutely present in the moment for the decisions that you need to make. Uh, if I have made a real or perceived error, um, and there's a difference there, real or perceived error i try and it's so easy to say move on but what i do at the next opportunity i've got is i make a note on my overs card so that it's a shopping list for me hopefully i don't get a shopping list of errors but i've written it down so that i don't have to remember to remember it which means that if there is footage available 
I can go back and look at over 34.4 or whatever it is. So that for me, the physical act of taking it, writing it down, takes it out of my brain and I can think about it and, and worry about it later and review anything if, if anything's available. So yeah, but everybody's got their different strategies on how to do that uh, and everybody will be different. What might work for me won't necessarily work for Nick um, and it's just about trial and erroring it just to see what does work for you. Yeah, that, that's a really good point that you bring up, kind of making the mental note. But to think, looking back at, at say, World Cricket League 2 again, and, and you know, we saw basically a flawless performance from you in the middle. And there were a couple of really high-pressure situations, that USA-Namibia game in particular, that went down to the last over. And I remember doing the stream with, with Lenny and just looking at all these decisions that were just spot on, like tight runouts, tight LBWs, no third umpire, stuff like that. But talking about, you know, when you do make mistakes and everyone does make them in, in any field, what's the process of actually going through and talking it through? Do you discuss it with someone else? Um, I know with, with streams and not having the camera straight on, it's probably very difficult to assess um, a number of decisions at that lower level. But I suppose as you move up and you get... The technology to work with you can assess things a little bit better what's the process there yeah so i think look looking if there is footage available look as, as you said depending on the, the level of the game and, and try and work out what, what was different in your routine that had made it made that error so could it be the fact that you only slept six hours the night before instead of eight hours the night before could it be could it, you know, a lot of a lot of umpiring comes down to the preparation. And so, you know, were you hydrated well enough? Did you eat well enough in the lead up to it? Were you standing in the same spot? Were you what were you watching? Were you watching what was important at that particular time? And then it's it's really quite self-reflective, uh, but it's important to have one or two people that you trust that know umpiring or know officiating that you can bounce ideas around to try and work out what was different or what to try next time. Um, I am Darren Goodger is one of my bouncy ideas off these persons. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, you know, really just really enjoy talking about umpiring with him. Um, my husband is another one who sometimes he, he gets too into it um, and he wants to know lots, wants to go into it real detail. I'm like, no, no, I just need to let it off my chest. I can work it through myself. Um, so just having those people that you trust that you can talk to um, is really important. But a, a lot of decisions in, in umpiring, you can ruin a fantastic decision with a poor explanation as well. Or um, you might have made a really good decision in club cricket, but everyone on the field thinks you've got it wrong. So that's a perceived error. So there's no guarantee that you have made an error. It's just that nobody likes what you've, what you've said. So, yeah, working out what, what you did differently to, to, other, uh, to other deliveries and what you might change next time. Because you're right, mistakes happen uh, and they're really important part of learning. Even, you know, you never walk, if you walk off a cricket field thinking you've had a perfect game as an umpire, then you're lying to yourself, to be quite honest, um, because there's always something that you can learn and something that you can improve on for next time. Yeah, I know there were a few situations with some some rather large fellows um, talking to you. And you also kind of talked about the double X chromosome and, and standing out on that front. How do you kind of manage that, you know, being a woman? And have you found that that impacts the way that the players treat you or, or has it not been an issue throughout your career? Well, I don't know what they're like when I'm not around, but I have, I mean, instances where 
players will, will swear and then they go, oh, sorry, 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 and they'll apologise for swearing. Or the, the striker is taking guard and they're like, oh, is that centre, sir? And then he'll look up and he'll see me. And he'll and then <laughs> get, they get really flustered, uh, flustered, Nick, because they're like, oh, no, what have I said the wrong thing? What? Yeah. And I'm like, whatever, it's fine. I mean, I had a, um, a player in first grade just two weekends ago who said, oh, sorry for the swearing, Claire. And I said, that's okay, as long as it doesn't leave the boundary. And he's like, oh, so I can say, whatever I want then. I was like, well, <laughs> to a certain point. But I think my understanding of what, what I think is that players don't care what gender umpires are as long as they get the decisions right or they're doing their best to get the decisions right. So I, it's hard to one to, to answer because I don't know what they're like when I'm not around. Um, but I think being a school teacher and, and that's all, all that is, is people management and communication. I think there's a lot of transferable skills. You know, I umpired before I was a teacher, so maybe they, they've gone both, both ways there. So there's a lot of transferable skills there. If you're a clear communicator and a good people manager, you can generally deal with, with most things that, that come into, into the realm of, of player management there. Um, and this is, this is one that I've kind of wanted. You, You've been involved in some, you know, really entertaining matches. Do you enjoy watching the game itself or, you know, watching an amazing spell of bowling or are you too focused on thinking about, oh, you know, where's the ball going or is that going to hit the stumps or what? So are you getting caught up in the job more than sort of watching the game itself? Yeah, I can walk off a cricket field and not know what the score was at the end of the innings. Mm-hmm. Um, I just have just have no no idea whatsoever. Even uh, I was actually, I was third umpire today in the uh, New South Wales Victoria one day game. Oh, yeah. And all of a sudden it was, I think I saw the score at 250 and then it was at 315 and I turned to the match referee. I was like, how did that happen? Because I just wasn't paying attention to it. I did enjoy being on the field though uh, when Alyssa Healy scored 148 against Sri Lanka uh, at North Sydney a couple of years ago. That was just clean hitting to watch and fantastic to watch. My favorite, like you talk about, being, you know, watching what's on on the field. My favorite part of an international cricket game, though, is just the moment when everybody's lined up before we go out for the national anthems. Because I just find that that is such it's such a special time. Um, you know, there's some nations that get really passionate about their anthems, and just that anticipation as we walk out onto the field and the anthem, anthem ceremony is is my favorite part of an international cricket game. I think. I, I suppose to draw on that again and and moving up the ranks and going from club cricket to domestic cricket and then ultimately international cricket i suppose the other factor to to talk about in all of this and the decision making process is perhaps the crowd and i know that for the last 12 18 months we haven't quite seen the crowd in in its you know 100 percent state but what's that like dealing with that external pressure from the other side of the boundary yeah, the, the biggest crowd I've umpired in front of um, was in 2018 in the West Indies for the India-England semi-final uh, in Antigua, and it was just noise. It was just absolute noise. Um, but fortunately, it if you're focusing on what you need to focus, it just becomes white noise in the background. Um, a tip Darren again gave us um, was if you just concentrate on the tap of the bat, if you can hear the tap of the bat on the ground as the striker's getting ready, um, then you'll be able to hear anything. And that, you know, you're really focused in on that. Uh, so that helps there. And in t- if there's any other criticism or um, reactions from the, from the crowd, then that, that's okay. They've all got their own opinion uh, and they can come and stand in the middle of the ground and they want, if they want to uh, and, and have a go and see how they go at that. That is something that I have thought about. You know, if the noise is that loud, 
can you hear a nick, mm. especially a fine one? Because it must, in some places, it must be incredibly difficult to pick up anything. Yeah, I you've just you've just got to trust your eyes, trust your eyes on what you're seeing in those in those environments. Uh, talking to to Kim Cotton, who was on field for the Australia India T20 final uh, twelve months ago. Uh, with 86,000 people at the MCG, she when Australia was fielding, I can't remember who was batting, but there was a little under edge and Alyssa Healy was up to the stumps and Kim was like, didn't hear it, couldn't hear a thing, but she just trusted her eyes um, and her many years of experience of umpiring. Um, so, you, yeah, club cricket, you can rely on your ears, um, but but not once you've got a lot of crowd noise that, that can that can hurt you in a way. So that... In that sort of situation, are you looking at cues from the players themselves and and sort of um, gauging kind of body language and and how they react to the situation? Yes and no. You've got to really know the players that you're working with. And and it's not something you can tell uh, beginner umpires or, or early career umpires because it's uh, it's, it's a hard one. Um, and to be honest, I, I tried to do it earlier this year in a club game and got stuffed. Uh, it, it just didn't work for me. Um, the batter has uh, played at the ball. It's hit the, the batter's hit the ground at the same time it's hit the ball. And I watched him and he gave me nothing. So I gave him not out. So sometimes, you know, you can, you, you know, the batter, the striker flicks their head um, really quickly to look at the keeper. Um, you know, there are those sort of cues where they start to walk and then they come back. But you've got to, you've got to really know the players before you can use that as a piece of information. Hmm. Um, otherwise, it'll, it won't work for you. So basically, the psychopaths are never going to be given out that way. <laughs> yeah, quite possibly they'll stay down. Yeah. So you, you talked about um, you know the crowd factor, but how do different natural conditions affect the job? You know, I'm thinking pitches with maybe variable bounce or or different kind of weather conditions, and how how do you adjust to that to try and make sure that you've you've got the same decision making process no matter where you're officiating. Yeah, I really like standing at square leg for the first over of a game. And that's not because I'm trying to shirk responsibility for starting the match. That's because I use that first over to, to have a look at what the bounce is doing for the beginning of the game uh, and trying to get that information as quickly as I possibly can. You know, we can talk, talking to the groundsman sometimes will give you insider information on how the pitch normally plays. Going to net sessions with, with the teams helps you um, to develop that relationship with the teams, but also to work out what sort of bowlers or what sort of batters and shots might be too expecting there. And talking to other umpires who have already umpired at the ground can also help you. We, we send these things around called paving stones and it's just like notes about the teams or notes about the grounds that might help the next person that, that comes across either of those. There's a couple of things that you can do, um, but I guess the trick is though to, to use all those information and to adapt as quickly as possible. Yeah, it's funny. I, I think a lot of the issues, well, a lot of the things that the umpires need to consider are, are very similar to how the players go about their business as well. We are all trying to play in a way that is effective um, in regards to conditions, but to look to umpiring as well, it's it's definitely something to to factor in. And, and just looking at say this this India England Test match at the moment, where all the talk has been about the surface, um, and it's taken the attention away from from a lot of actually what's gone on the field. I suppose you know umpiring in, in different conditions um, and looking towards say Namibia uh, again in World Cricket League Two, where uh, an associate country, perhaps, you know, the, the conditions aren't exactly conducive for top-class international cricket. Are there any external difficulties for that for, for match officials or is it a case of getting that first match out of the way and, and then 
getting um, into the rhythm of it once more? Yeah, I think get, getting into the rhythm, having a look at the, the local environment when you get to the different environments, wherever that is. Um, but something that Darren said again, maybe you should get Darren on the show. Um, Sounds like he, it. He, <laughs> I feel like he's here. <laughs> he, he, he has said that if a, if a pitch is hard to bat on, then a pitch is hard to umpire on. Hmm. And so I think that that's very similar with the players trying to, to deal with what they're faced and the umpires having to as well. So I don't know if that answers your question there, Dan, but yeah. No, I can imagine at times, you know, when, when wickets are tumbling and there's a lot of decisions that need to be made, that there's only so much mental effort and, and concentration that someone has over the course of the day right so i can imagine you know on days where you know the ball's doing a lot and and you're forced to make a lot of decisions especially early in the day it, it could be tricky you know building into say the end of the day or if, you, if you're doing a test match for example into days two to, to, to five potentially yeah i had a four-day game it would have been maybe two or three seasons ago when we were playing with the dukes balls and it was a, obviously a two innings match and it was over by t on day three i think um and so it happened all quite quickly i might have even been early on on day three but it, it happened all very very quickly lots of decisions fortunately a lot of them were just nicks to second slip but it was a lot going on and something that even even if there aren't a lot of decisions to make umpires are, are making decisions all of the time uh so a couple of weekends ago we had a first so in in sydney premier cricket we have a captain's meeting uh in first and second grade and the captain said oh nobody got hit on the pad so you didn't have to make any decisions i'm like hang on a minute i obviously i didn't say anything during the meeting but in my head i'm like Every time a ball's delivered, we make five or six decisions. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of other stuff going on when a lot seems to be happening and when also when, when things aren't um, happening at the same time. I can imagine. Are there, are there bowlers that you do look at and you just know that they're always candidates of having a lot of LBW decisions and you, you kind of earmark a few different players. It's like, oh, hang on. I think I've got to have my, my work cut out for me in this particular instance. Yeah, there are bowlers where you know you're you're in the game every every time they deliver a ball, and there, and there's bowlers that you know from from practice that they're going to be front, close to the front foot, so you need or they're going to be in the protected area, and that's part of the paving stones that we share with each other, so that you've got that information, so you're forearmed for it uh, when when they do come to your end. So one one of you we we mentioned the uh, you know the India Test match uh, just before one of the more controversial moments was the discussion around uh, playing a shot and you know whether the batsman's playing a shot when the the bat is you know tucked behind the pad. How do you actually determine whether a shot has been played for LBW purposes? So it comes down to if there's been a genuine attempt to play the ball which doesn't answer your question whatsoever, but a genuine attempt for a number two batter uh, will be different to a genuine attempt for a number 11 batter because of their skill level. Uh, and I haven't, to be honest, I haven't watched a lot of the Indian test match, so I'm not sure of the exact decision that you're, or incidences that you're referring to there. But if for me, if the batter has tucked their bat behind the pad, that probably doesn't look like a genuine attempt to play the ball. And it doesn't have to be a good shot that's played. It just has to be a genuine attempt at playing the ball. So you might not like the shot, but if, if they've tried to play the ball uh, to the best of their ability, then, then that would be regarded as, a, for me, as a, a shot being played. In fact, as a genuine attempt to play the ball. Sorry, I'm not going to call it playing a shot. Mm. Changing tack a, a little bit, we talked about how the opportunity for, for girls and women has, has grown and developed, um, mainly, I guess, through an Australian lens. One of the most inspiring parts of what we do is to learn about stories of Papua New Guinea, Thailand, Samoa, you mentioned, has the 
highest number of, of junior female players across the associate world, interestingly. And we've seen how the, the game has, has created opportunities for, for girls and women in, in those countries. Is officiating a bit like a poor cousin? Like, Should we be using officiating, whether it's scoring or umpiring, as a way to drive broader participation in these nations? Is, is that an, an opportunity? Like, have you seen it used here in Australia and things that could be done overseas as well? I, I don't know, to be honest, but I my, the first response that came in my head was why not? Um, you know, why not get more females involved at, at any level of, of cricket uh, or any position of cricket there? Um, I mean, PNG had Helen as an umpire for a number of years, but I think she's stopped now. And there's a few others, a, a female umpire in Oman, I think, and there's a couple of others floating around. Uh, but there's there's no reason why, I would hope there's no reason why you can't get more females involved. It's just, as we said, you can't be what you can't see. So if they if they don't see the, the female umpiring, you know, exposed to them in, the, in their home country, then how do they know that it's a possibility? No, absolutely. I remember hearing a story from Craig and Gower Cricket Club in Hong Kong, and they would tour all these, I'd say random, but places that you know you wouldn't expect and they went to Saudi Arabia years ago and all the umpires were female because that was their the easiest road to participation it, it seemed because it was they were able to to, to, to dress in an appropriate manner for there and, and it was so they were quite taken aback um, and I think that was about geez about 10 years ago now and Saudi Arabia has teams playing but it's just interesting to see how those those elements of participation could be used but I guess we, we see countries like Nigeria forever sort of talking about them running umpires and scorers courses just hope that they can run some that that, that focus and really show girls and women there that um, that it's just as open to them as well and especially a place like Nigeria who've just put out their plan or the first time they've said it that their plan is to become a full member of the ICC so the more people involved the better so yeah I sort of asked that question you know I know you're not going to come as an expert on, on the topic in terms of uh, growth and development there I just thought of, of the opportunities that you've seen and how that's grown in Australia and we've seen how it's growing on the playing side overseas whether the two could sort of mold together yeah i hope that they would come together um because when i mean when a lot of male players finish playing then they become umpires i mean in england it's it's a backlog of, of ex first class players wanting to be an umpire um but it's funny when i talk to the, the female players in new south wales they're like oh no i don't want to be an umpire because i've seen the sort of crap that that i give umpires and i don't want to repeat <laughs> like, well, don't give the umpires hard time might might help that out but that, that is one solution. Oh, see, just as you're talking about that, that, that question came to mind. You know, we may have debated offline whether good players make good commentators or not. What about players making umpires? You said yourself you, you didn't play, and you know, it sounds like you've done all right for yourself. And you, you're seeing all young umpire, well, young and old umpires coming through. Is there a pattern or, uh, you know, anything scientific? I guess the numbers are there about who makes better umpires. I don't know if there's anything scientific about it, um, but I, I do think that potentially if you've been a player and you become an umpire, you probably get a bit of a head start because you've got that game awareness and that match awareness. Um, but Sue Redfern, uh, another umpire uh, from England, has said that because uh, so she played for for England. Um, she played, I think she's the first or first female to both play and umpire in a World Cup. So she played in the 1997 World Cup in England, in India, sorry and then officiated in the 2017 World Cup in England. And she has said that potentially when she first started umpiring, she had a, a bit of a head start. But then for me, coming in purely from an umpiring perspective, we look at the, 
game differently. And so that has probably, while it took me maybe a little bit longer than if I'd have been a player, we've reached the same the same point there, having the different lenses um, looking at the game there. Yeah, I, I'm actually, and from that, wondering if you team up particularly well with individual umpires at, at the other end. Are there, are there people that you tend to umpire better with or you find it easier with? I, I wouldn't say that, that I, I find it better or I find it easier, but something that my husband said, uh, I think it was before we went to, must just re- recently, the last trip that we had was the, the T20 World Cup, uh, and he sort of said to me, you're just going away with your mates now, aren't you? <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah, we, we are. We do get on. Um, quite quite well and that you know there's obviously like in any part of life there's people that you gravitate to more than others um but you know there's a, a couple that that i'm on whatsapp you know chatting all the time all the time to um so and then there's others that you know you turn up you do your job and then that's it and that's just purely you know any workplace uh i imagine that you'd find the same sort of thing there so it is it's a lot of fun now i'm very i'm so lucky um to be able to umpire so i love umpiring uh and then to travel and to, to you know to meet all these people from around the place is, is very fortunate. So we've seen in the emerging cricket world, you know, around the women's side of the game has been especially successful at breaking through. Um, you know, we look at Hong Kong and we look at Namibia and we look at, you know, we look at Mexico and, and all these places, Thailand, of course, the most notable. Um, do you think the same is true of women's umpiring or is there more work to do on that front within um, associate cricket countries? Yeah, I think there's more work to do. I think um, I think it was Tim that said umpiring can be the, the poor cousin. Uh, I think umpiring's umpiring's not sexy. <laughs> um, it's hard to convince people, I guess, in some respects, to jump on board with it. So I think there's definitely um, more that can be done and should be done. But it's it it's really down to the home boards to drive it. Um, there's no point in head offices saying you need to do this. It needs to come from from the local associations. And um, just just on that, I know that Australia and some of the state associations do some work with uh, helping development of you know playing in the East Asia Pacific region. Um, Victoria has some links with Japan, for example, and and PNG has played in a number of tournaments in Australia. Is there much of that sort of engagement on the umpiring front? Not as much. When we were in Samoa in 2016. Uh, Cricket Australia did send over the uh, umpire educator for Cricket Australia um, and we did some workshops with the local umpires. Um, when when I have been travelling, we have tried to have sessions with umpires, um, if it's just a Q&A session or a, you know, a scenario-based session. But in terms of the organised, from a, from a board point of view, there's not really anything down that avenue. But you might be suggesting about how I do get overseas when we're allowed to travel to, to go and develop more more umpires there. That would be fun. I'd really enjoy that. But it's yeah, there's there's nothing, not a lot that I'm aware of happening at the moment anyway. That's the end of part one. We'll have part two with Claire next week. Make sure to subscribe to the Emerge Cricket Podcast if you haven't done so already so you can tune in as soon as it drops every week, pass the pot around, and make sure to give us a five-star review. If you want to support us financially, go to Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Cricket, where you can support us from as little as $2 a month. You'll get access to extended shows of a number of our podcasts, and you'll also have a say on the show's direction. For now, on behalf of Nick Skinner, Tim Cutler, and myself, Daniel Peswick, see you next week.